to it uh, next midweek is 21st of August. Uh, we do have the kind of we've been talking about the international dinner and trivia night uh, there on the 23rd of August. Uh, and so hopefully you're planning your traditional dishes, and that's going to be awesome, right? Are you getting tutorial from your mom? Pam? No? You get Betsy to teach you some, some traditional Singaporean food. Uh, for the Bible Talk leaders, 25th of August, just after church, we'll have a brief uh, meeting. Uh, mother-daughter tea, as we talked about last week. Good news is V is getting baptized. Uh, so many, everyone knows V. The, the bad news is, is V wants to do her baptism uh, tomorrow at 2. Uh, I, I reckon it's purposely trying to exclude us. Um, uh, but Damien is uh, he, he's out of town this weekend, so we're going to do it tomorrow. We'll post a time as we negotiate that with V, uh, but that'll be tomorrow. Uh, and then Mel... Uh, young university student should be coming. She's not here today, but she has been coming for months. Many of you know her. She's going to get baptized Wednesday night, uh, 7-ish, probably at, uh, at, at our house, uh, because Jim decided to, to break his hot tub, uh, much to the dismay of both B and Mel. Uh, so if anyone else is on the fence about getting a hot tub between now and tomorrow, uh, get it, and uh, yeah, we'll use it. So it's great. Uh, you have a pool. Yeah, what temperature is your pool? Uh, not hot tub temperature, uh, probably nine. Uh, <laughs> the ocean is warmer at that point. Uh, ocean's almost 20. Uh, further off in the distance, uh, got a church retreat, as we've been talking about. And then a couple of you have asked about what is the Krabby Men's Retreat, okay? Uh, that's Michelle making fun of us. No, it's a combination. We're gonna, it's either overnight. You can go down and have it overnight at Matt's family's place. We are going to do some crabbing together as men. Because uh, it's crabbing season, right? So we'll be, we'll be getting some crabs and eating some crabs, hopefully. Obviously, contingent of whether we get any crabs. But that, that's further off in the distance. Uh, so, awesome. All right. Let, let's look at some more James, and then we'll, we'll take communion together. Uh, and, uh, yeah, have a shorter service, I mean. That was a test to see who amen shorter service. <laughs> Only Blair. All right. My Bible's breaking. Time for a new one. All right, so we're, we'll be going through James, and as I told you last week, it, it's kind of the meat of the book, uh, and it's uh, it's quite challenging. You know, if you were with us last week, we did talk about just kind of a brief recap. Uh, we talked about the power of words there in, in James chapter three, uh, you know, verses one to, to, to twelve. But you know, there, there are some challenging things in there, uh, and we talked about that. The, the bits of uh, uh, in the mouth of a horse can, can control a whole animal. The, a rudder can control a massive ship. Uh, a small fire is set on, on uh, a, 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 a blaze uh, by a single spark. And some of you even questioned my fact on the big bushfire in America being started by a hammer on a tent peg. Uh, but thankfully, I, that was an actual accurate fact. So I appreciate uh, my wife and my nephew both fact-checking me. Um, but uh, we did talk about that, the power of words. And then I came across this, which I should have used last week, but I'll use it on the recap. Uh, you know, as a guy from church history, uh, and I use church loosely there because I doubt he was part of church, really. But, you know, he was a, the 13th century Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Frederick II, and some people called him Emperor Frankenstein, uh, you know. And uh, he, was, uh, he was fascinated by speech and language, uh, and, and he had a period of time in his life where he was in a quest uh, for, for, for the language of, of the Garden of Eden. Uh, and, and so as... Uh, crazy people do that have a lot of power and authority, uh, he got together a bunch of infants and, uh, and got, got some women to nurse them and look after them. 
but never speak to them. Feed them, care for them, cuddle them, Lonnie. Don't worry, they were cuddled. Uh, you know, but, but never spoken to. Uh, you know, and, and you know, you can imagine how that played out. It didn't play out well for the infants. They, they didn't survive. And, and this idea that, 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 that communication is vital, source of life. Right. Some of you are already fact-checking me on that, and then I put my sources, I put my sources in my notes, so you can talk to me afterwards and, and still pay attention instead of fact-checking. You know, but uh, it's it, it's it, it's a reminder, though. It's a reminder of even what we talked about last week of Proverbs eighteen twenty-one. This idea that the tongue has the power of life and death, uh, and those who love it will eat its fruit. You know that, uh, that 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 when we speak, we have a choice. When we open our mouth, we have a choice. Uh, we can bring life to people. We can bring healing to people. Or we can destroy and bring death. You know, one of the challenges we talked about uh, was thinking about your words more this week. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if you did that or not. I know a couple of you did. A couple of you talked to me about it. I know I did, and it's scary. It's scary, especially when you think about the second thing we talked about uh, of the problem of our words. This idea that, that James puts to us there in verses eleven to twelve that can both fresh water and salt water or bitter water flow from the same spring. Brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And he says that in the context of, hey, we praise God but curse people. And we've got to realize that out of the same mouth comes these two very different things. You know, and they come from two very different sources. And this idea that we have within us uh, life and death. That we have within our, within our soul the capacity to bring great harm, but also to produce, you know, great, great healing. Uh, but we have to take seriously the words Jesus says there. You know, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. A tree is recognized by its fruit, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And, and, and hopefully as you went about the challenge of, of thinking more about what your words are telling you about your heart, hopefully you took to, to, to uh, you know, took with great care what you discovered in that process. Because James, in some sense, is telling them, hey, you want to know what's really within you. Because we can assume all there's good in us. But he says, hey, take a look at your words. Take a look at how you speak to people. That'll actually tell you a great deal about what's on the inside. Of what you're really full of. And we can think, oh, we're full of good and kindness, but yet we destroy one another. And James says, hey, that, that's not possible. Right? Uh, but, but, but both of these ideas... In, in that whole first part of, of, of chapter 3, uh, should put within us this question of, okay, then, if, if what's in my heart is, is revealed by my speech, and, and you know what, I thought about this week a lot of the times when I spoke, why I was saying it, the motives behind it, the heart, the reason, uh, the deeper motives that, that, that drove what came out of my mouth, and man, I don't actually really like what's inside of me. That's actually a little bit scary. Hopefully that is a question you, you, you thought to uh, thought about because that's what James is endeavoring to answer in what follows. Amen? So let's read here the last section there of James chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 18. Amen? You guys with me? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. James' answer, of course, as you'll see here, especially if you have a title, uh, is that of wisdom, right? And so verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. By deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote-unquote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, 
demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. For the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. You know, two very powerful paragraphs. You know, two very powerful paragraphs. And, and as you can see here, the answer to, to the, 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 the problem of our words and, and the deeper issue within our heart is wisdom. We need the right wisdom. If we're going to change what's on the inside and produce what God desires us to produce in terms of good fruit, we, we've got to pursue wisdom uh, in, in the right way. You know, when you think about wisdom, uh, there's our text, sorry. Right? You think about this idea of wisdom, you know, I think James puts two questions before us. You know, what is true wisdom? You know, underline true because James also uses wisdom there with the little quotation marks. We should make us pause. He's talking about there's a different kind of wisdom. And he goes on to spell that different kind of wisdom as a demonic wisdom. You know, almost very similar to what Jono and, and, uh, and Jack talked about a couple weeks back when they looked at chapter 2 and, and talked about, uh, you know, real faith, living faith versus demonic faith. James likes to put things on very different extremes to draw grand contrasts to make truth very plain to us. You know, and here in this, in this chapter, his, his aim is not that of faith, but it's wisdom and really spelling out, hey, what is actual uh, godly wisdom? How do we know what it is, right? Uh, and secondly, the, the question of how, how do we get it? How do I fill my heart with more of it so then what I say is, is said in a way that brings glory to God? Amen. So let's look at those two questions here. Before we do that, let's have a, let's have a quick prayer. Uh, Father, we, uh, we thank you that we can gather together you know, as, as brothers and sisters, Father. And God, we're, uh, we are sobered by, by, by James 3. We're sobered by the notion of, of even you know, what James says there about how we, we praise you, our, our Lord and Father, but then with the same tongue we, we curse one another. And God, we, we know that, that if we're humble, we all do that to an extent, God. And we pray you help us, God, that this afternoon as we look at the, the, the rest of uh, James 3 here, God, you help us, God, to grasp wisdom. wisdom. You help us to, to define it and see it clearly, what, what is wisdom that, that comes from you and from you alone, God. And help us, God, uh, to understand how we can get more and more of it in our heart and in our mind, God. Be with us, God. Bless our time together. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Let, let, let's look at these two questions here. What is true wisdom and how do we get it? All right. So what is true wisdom? Right. You know, James, uh, again, I, I really like James. Hopefully you've been enjoying it yourself, you know, but he, he, you know, the first couple verses here, let's read them again. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that come from wisdom. Uh, James is posing this question. Who is wise and understanding? Who is pursuing wisdom? Who, who, who thinks they maybe have some wisdom? Or for, for those that are seeking it, well, what's a good example of someone that has wisdom? And he said, look, consider this, right? But as he says that, it's also, he's also going to unpack it for us. You know, he uses these two words, wise uh, and understanding there, right? Uh, and, and wise, you know, sophos, uh, the Greek word wisdom, you know, Sophia. Uh, you know, and, and you think about Sophia, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, it's where we get our English word sophisticated, right? And, and, and you know, think about someone that's sophisticated uh, is that they have uh, you know great knowledge uh, and understanding, but they also have tremendous experience. 
right? And they're in tune with culture and real life, right? And it's this, this marrying together of the two, you know, and understanding uh, is very similar to that of just, you know, someone who has a great deal of knowledge or they're an expert in a field, right? Uh, and so James puts those two, and, and, and even with wisdom, you know, we've got to understand with wisdom, he, he, he starts with wisdom and, and, and pairs it with understanding, but then from there, here on, he almost discards understanding. Because in James' mind, wisdom encompasses both concepts. Because wisdom is not just knowledge, but it's also, as you can see there in the next sentence, it's seen. It's knowledge, it's expert knowledge of life put into practice. This idea that, that someone could be an expert in something but not actually practice it is a foreign concept in the Bible. Right? You know, uh, the Apostle John does the same thing in his, uh, you know, me and Dave were talking about this the other day, uh, you know, in, in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he spells out this idea of you, you think you, you love God, but you don't love people. He's like, that's not really possible. And, he, and, he, and the Bible does the same thing with, with knowledge and, you know, uh, in terms of wisdom. It says the same thing. You, you think you know a lot, but if your life isn't actually matched by that, then you don't really actually know a lot. Because right? true knowledge, real knowledge, biblical knowledge is always going to encompass real life practical application. Right? So that, that makes sense. And that's what he talks about there. As he says, you know, you, you think you're wise understanding? We'll show it. should be seen in your deeds, not just talked about with your mouth. Right? Uh, you know, and then he goes on to say, you know, that those deeds need to be done in humility. Right? Uh, but, but those deeds, that life is not just uh, meant to be shown, but it's meant to be shown to be a, a good life. And even in, 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 in Greek, in the New Testament, when you think about good, uh, there's two words that the Bible uses. There's good, like we normally think about good uh, in terms of good in contrast with evil. Right? Good and evil. Right? Uh, the, the second one is that of, uh, of, of good meaning beautiful, meaning lovely in contrast with ugly. Right? Uh, like me and Michelle, right? Uh, ugly, lovely, right? It, 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 very clear, right? That drove it home for everyone, you know? Uh, but but it, you think about beauty and what makes something beautiful, it's not a singular variable. It's a lot of variables together, right? Not just one aspect, but this idea of someone embodies or, 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 or something embodies uh, a, a wide range of things held together in harmony. Right? Something that's in, in, in order and, and, it's, and it's lovely. It's arranged. Uh, you know? And James most likely, even there as he says there, let them show it by their good life, is contrasting that good aspect, that ordered, lovely, beautiful picture aspect that's, that's in the Greek uh, with what he'll say later about the other way of life, which is one of disorder, mm-hmm. chaos. All right? Creation itself is beautiful. Why? Because there's order to it. Right? And that's what makes it beautiful in many ways. It's clearly a, a designer. Right? But, but the life that's following a very different wisdom is not that way. You know, James is contrasting that. But, but there he even says that, that, as we see there, that those deeds, those, those, that good life uh, that should flow from that wisdom and understanding, that those deeds that are done should be done in humility or, or depending on the Bible translation you're reading, uh, meekness. Meekness is an interesting word, right? Uh, self-subduing Gentleness. Self-subduing gentleness. It requires, though, another party. Meekness isn't seen to be what it really is, and even humility is not really seen for, for its full measure unless it is within the context of a relationship. 
Because it's self-subduing in this, in, for the sake of the other party. And meekness is obviously meant to be, be seen in our lives, first and foremost to God, but then for sure to one another. Right? This self-subduing, uh, you know, um, gentleness, you know, both Godward and manward, uh, you know, to, to, to one another. You know, but, but even here, James is beginning to show us something in that this idea of wisdom is always anchored in some sense Within relationships. Everything that follows that James is going to say as he details out uh, this list of uh, negative virtues or sins uh, versus good virtues are all, are all listed out in the context and all require the context of a relationship. So you can't, in, in James's mind, you can't say you're an expert and be withdrawn from the world living in isolation. Now, most of our experts function that way. They sit in the university campus. Uh, the only interaction they have is briefly uh, with students, and they, they unload a bunch of information that the students don't even understand, and then they retreat back to their office, and they never have any human-to-human contact. Right? Uh, and they are, they are experts. James Bond, no, 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 that's impossible. True wisdom is found in someone, actually, who, who lives in great relationships, whose good deeds, whose life, Produces uh, and, and you know cultivates and creates beautiful relationships, right? And that, that's probably a good working summary of what is true wisdom or or who is wise. It's someone that knows how to create and cultivate these beautiful relationships, ordered relationships. Again, it doesn't mean we're all the same and you're only friends with people who you are alike. No, it's this idea that, that someone who's wise understands life and has knowledge to understand to a point that they can interact with a lot of different people and have relationships with a lot of different people even though they're not the same. James says, hey, that, that's, that's what wisdom is. Like I said, just in case we, we missed the point, he drives it home. He says, look, this demonic wisdom, this quote-unquote wisdom that, that people think they have, their, their deeds actually betray them. Because he says, what do you see in them? It's this bitter envy. Selfish ambition that, that results in a life that's just disordered and then just, you know, every evil practice. What does that mean? That means a lot. <laughs> it's this idea that, that if, that if in, the, in the deeper well is this quote-unquote wisdom that, that in reality is actually fueled and driven by bitter jealousy or bitter desire and, and, and that produces this, self, this life of selfish ambition, meaning it's all about self-interest. He says, look, that just leads to disorder. That leads to confusion and chaos and a breakdown of relationships. And at that point, every evil practice then gets locked in. Right? James says, look, that, that's not the way. And, and you think about these, I mean, this is a scary list. Bitter envy. You know, last week Michelle did, uh, uh, did the, the, shared the communion message. She shared about John 2 in, 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 uh, where it says, you know, for, for Jesus, if he makes a whip and he clears out the temple, uh, that his disciples remember the scripture in the Old Testament that says, zeal for your house will consume me. Right? That, that Greek word zealous is the same one actually used here. So it's bitter zeal. Again, it's not, you know, for Jesus, it's not a sinful word. Uh, but when James attaches bitter to it, he's telling us something about it. Right? And again, he's referencing back to that bitter spring. Can, can good things come out of a bitter spring? No. You can have fresh water and uh, brackish water, bitter water, from the same source. And here he says, look, you want to know? You want to know what source is within you? Well, if you see that bitter envy, that bitter desire, right? That tells you, you know, and you, you know, Aristotle, famous Greek guy, long dead, right? He says, 
you know, he says of, the, of this word, of zeal, right? Zealous, regarding jealousy, right? Zealous grieves, right? Jealous or envy, again, depending on which English translation you're reading. He says, not because another has the good, but that he or she himself does not have it and seeks to supply the deficiency in himself. All right, so what he's saying here is saying this idea of bitter envy, jealous envy, uh, you know, or bitter, bitter jealousy looks, looks with evil intent at, at, at an object, someone's strengths, someone's gifts, someone's possessions, someone's relationships, and they look at them in a negative way, not because they are against that thing, but simply because they are against that they don't have that thing. That they are not in possession of. All right, again, there's nothing wrong with the object itself. Right? And, 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 and James then couples it with selfish ambition, which is, you know, selfish ambition is, a, is, is an interesting thing, you know, because we, uh, we, we, sometimes we lack ambition. Wanting to, this idea of, hey, we gotta, I've got to do something productive in life. But James says there's a way about going about that, which is an, a positive thing, having some ambition. Paul even says, First Thessalonians 4, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your business, work with your hands, in a way that your life actually wins the respect of others. Right? But, but there's also a way of going about that where it's honestly at the core of it is all about self-interest. It's not the sense of, 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 of let me live to my fullest potential for the good of God and for the good of mankind. But rather just let me just live to my fullest potential for the good of me. Primarily and really only selfish uh, self-interest. Scholar J.H. Rope says that this, this word selfish and Ambition is an inclination to use unworthy and divisive means for promoting one's own self-interest. He says we should see the stresses on the word divisive in this definition to really tell us what it is, right? It's this idea of seeking self so much so that willing to divide others to accomplish that, to gain that. And so you think about this picture that James is painting. Again, James is, is interesting. He doesn't give us a, a crystal clear working definition. He's saying, hey, here's what this looks like. You, you look out in the world and you're wondering who's, who is wise and understanding, who can I learn from? He says, hey, here, here's, here's, here's what that, that, that really is about. Here's actually what true wisdom looks like and here's what the false wisdom looks like. All right? You think about this, this, again, this pairing together bitter enemy, selfish ambition. If you think about it within the realm of possessions, right? we look at uh, or, or, or have bitter envy or bitter jealousy towards someone's possession, their house or their car, right? We're not anti-cars or anti-houses. We just want it, right? Like if Darren drove a Ferrari. Darren doesn't drive a Ferrari, you know? But, but Darren would pull up to church and a lot of the guys would be out there uh, and we'd be having strong desire towards Darren's car, right? It's, 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 it's nothing negative about the car. It's just the fact that we don't have the car, Right? Uh, you know, take, take another area, right? Take, uh, you know, authority, right? Bitter envy wouldn't make, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't drive someone to be anti-authority. It would just make them be anti-authority about any authority other than their own authority, right? The, 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 the ways they would accomplish that is negative, you know, critical or hypocritical fault-finding of, uh, of other people. Uh, or, or you think about relationships and how bitter envy, selfish ambition plays out in relationships. Uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're anti-relationship. It just means you look at a relationship and, 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 you, and you think of it with self-interest. You know, why doesn't Ben like me as much as he likes Stefan? Again, it's not, it's not that you're against Ben and Stefan's relationship. Again, hypotheticals here, right? You know, but it, it's, it's, I wish Ben, you know, uh, saw me as, as, as much as he sees Stefan. 
right? All about self, right? Now, now when that happens, when we feel that, the tools that James, I think, would say that we use then are things like slander and gossip and dissension to destroy another relationship in order to gain greater place for ourselves. Again, James is painting this picture, right? And, and, and these types of things, this bitter envy, selfish ambition, uh, it obviously produces disorder. It produces chaos. It erodes the very foundation of relationships. And like I said, opens the door for all sorts of other trouble, like evil practice. And, and James says, hey, wisdom produces that? I don't think so. This is what wisdom produces. And you think about how <laughs> you can't be more opposite. Right? Instead of this bitter envy, this bitter rivalry, there's pure and peace-loving attitude. Right? Instead of the, the selfish ambition of, of seeking first uh, your, your, your own desires and what's best for you, it's instead uh, a considerate and submissive spirit. When you think about consideration, is, is I'm going to take great care to think about the other party and to not do anything that would maybe uh, you know, erode that person's faith, faith or damage their faith. I mean, submissive is someone that's that's easily persuadable to change their mind. Easily willing, within the context of a relationship, to be persuaded that their viewpoint is perhaps wrong, uh, or their way of doing this is, is not the best, and, and they'll try this way. Right? Full of mercy, good fruit, you know, impartial, sincere. I mean, this, you know, impartial and sincere is, you know, without variance. There's not that double-minded sense. There's not, there's not this person's one way with me, and then a different way with someone else. No, no, no. If we're really following God's wisdom, and there's this impartiality, right? This sincerity without hypocrisy, you know. And 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 the first positive virtue James lists there is peace loving. The last one he talks about is that of peacemakers. That's the core of it. Because again, his his idea of what is wisdom, it's it's the ability to create and to cultivate great relationships. And we got to think about. That. Because our relationships then tell us really what wisdom we're full of. And if we don't have good relationships, or if we don't have any relationships, or the relationships we do have are, are constantly marred by conflict and, and, and problems and disorder, then we've got to think, I'm not full of the right kind of wisdom. And, and again, and James, you know, as he loves to do, operating on parallels, they are two very different sources of wisdom. I mean, demonic wisdom, that's, that's frightening. That should scare us. But wisdom that's from above and the product that it produces, man, we, we, should, we should hunger and thirst for that. Right? Amen? So what is wisdom? James outlines it for us very clearly. Secondly, and a lot shorter, okay? I know there's a lot on that slide, right? Uh, you think, okay, I, I don't want to have... Uh, a heart full of bitter envy and selfish ambition and a life marred by, by disorder and heaps of evil practices. Well, okay, how do I get the right kind of wisdom? How do I get more of that in my life? Uh, you know, is it something that we just work harder at? Is, you know, do we take those virtues and study those virtues out uh, and flog ourselves till we have those virtues always? Uh, no. Interesting enough, James doesn't actually tell us to do anything in this text. He doesn't give us... Uh, you know, he, he doesn't offer us a whole bunch of verbs, do this, right? He doesn't give us a whole bunch of nouns saying, hey, nah, that, that, that's the good context. But, but the entire thing is adverbs. The kind of, he, he's, he's saying, look, again, wisdom is knowledge in real life. So it's an example. 
Huh? You know, and, and challenge you. Think about a couple things here. I think a couple things that the Bible as a whole tells us uh, about how we get more wisdom. You know, I think first and foremost, we've got to fear God. If you're familiar with Proverbs, Proverbs, one of the great themes of Proverbs is that is wisdom. Uh, and Proverbs says, look, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction, you know, and that's Hebrew parallelism. So he's saying the same thing twice to give us a fuller meaning, right? Uh, so again, in the, in the Proverbs, uh, the writer of Proverbs' mind, this idea of knowledge, uh, wisdom, and instruction being separate things is impossible. We're all in that together, okay? Uh, you know, and, and he says, you want to know how to begin that? Fear of the Lord. Having a fear of God. Not a topic everyone likes to talk about. Uh, not a concept a lot of uh, preachers will preach about. Because uh, the idea that we should fear something is not something we necessarily like to think about. Uh, and, and we prefer an image uh, of Jesus with flowing hair, cuddling a little, cuddly little baby lamb. Uh, you know, not, not an image uh, of Jesus riding on a white horse uh, with, with fire in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. Okay, which is the more biblical picture in Revelation, right? Uh, of, of Jesus, you know. And, and, but man, we, we should have a healthy fear of God, a healthy awe of God. He's God. We're not. He created us. We didn't create ourselves. Right? You know, we, we, we should have this awe uh, 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 of, of our Creator. You know, and it's an interesting thing. When we, when we have a proper fear of God, we then gain a proper understanding of ourselves. I think this is the whole story of the Bible, by the way. I think in the beginning when, when the Bible says that uh, God created us in his image, uh, it's, a, it's an introductory statement to get us to read the rest of the book. Saying, look, you want, you want to know where you've come from? You want to actually know about yourself? You cannot discover that apart from God. You know, even in this text that we read there in James 3, uh, you know, verse uh, 14 there, you know, after he talks about, you know, the, the, the true wisdom, he says, but if you harbor bitter, bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, he says, it's an interesting sentence, he says, do not boast about it or deny the truth. All right, so, so if we look at our hearts and we do see some of these things, we do see some of that bitter envy, we do see some of that self-interest, and again, if we're humble, we all should see a bit of that in our hearts, right? He says, look, you have two choices at that point. You can boast about it. Or you can deny it. Both are forms of self-deception. Right? Again, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks as we've looked at James, uh, James from chapter 1 has been targeting self-deception. Talks about someone who sits and hears the word of God, uh, you know, sees himself for a minute, and then goes away and completely forgets what they look like and don't put into practice any of the things they just heard. He says, man, that's self-deception. And it's dangerous. And here again, he's talking about it. As you think about taming your tongue and the things that come out of your mouth and what's really in your heart, and he's like, oh gosh, there's bad things in my heart. He says, but at that point, when you see that, you have that glimpse of that, you have a choice. You can boast about it. You can embrace the incorrect viewpoint of life and of yourself and call what's bad actually good. And a lot of people do that. A lot of people, a lot of, a lot of the world takes negative qualities uh, and, and makes it a badge of honor, right? It's probably not most of us in this room doing that. But but the other other side of self deception, according to James, is denial. See it and then just put it out of our mind. Say it, 
Think about the, the, the motives, the deeper meaning behind those words. Realize, oh gosh, that's not good. Push it out of our mind. Denial. He says, look, that, that leads to selfish ambition. And, 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 and it's dangerous. But if you deceive yourself, you have no idea what you're really living. The, your ability to live a life that's wise is gone. You know, even you know, pagan philosophers like Aristotle, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. They even know and understand that, that if wisdom is really this personification of knowledge embedded in day-to-day life as seen in our relationships with one another, if you're unaware of yourself, there is no way you're going to possibly be wise. There's no way. Now you think about these two things. How do I get more wisdom? Well, fear God and, and, and see yourself clearly. They are directly connected. All right, turn with me real quick. Okay. Don't worry. Run out of time, but turn with me real quick. Second Corinthians, chapter five here. Chapter five. There in verse ten. And again, this is one of those times where the, uh, if you're reading the NIV, the little, the bold titles are not helpful. Okay, those are put in later. Bible writers didn't put those in, right? Second Corinthians five. We'll read, we'll read five, ten, and eleven. All right. He says, Paul writes. He says, "For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others what we are." is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Paul thinks about judgment, though. He thinks about a day where we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going we're to receive, good or bad. <laughs> and he says, okay, so now we know what it is to fear the Lord. He says that should lead to us being plain, to realize we are plain to God. And in fact, we're plain to one another. Because if we live our life conscious of God, first and foremost... What I am is plain before God. God sees it. I can try to practice self-denial. I can try to, to, to deceive myself. I can try to compartmentalize things. Uh, I can e- even attempt to completely invert things, calling that which is bad good and what's good bad. But, but the reality is that God sees all. And he sees even our feeble attempts at self-deception and self-denial. And he's aware of it. And so a fear of God, a consciousness of God shatters this duplicity. Forces us to see ourselves for what we really are. And in that process, man, should tremendously humble us. Not just before God, but before people. Right? And so these things, these two things, again, paired intimately together. You know, how do we get it? Well, we've got to fear God and we've got to see ourselves. You know, thirdly, simply live life. Life alone should give us wisdom. And James talked about this in, in, in James chapter 1. You know, James chapter 1 there, you know, talks about verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, that it will be given to you. So James says, hey, look, the end result of suffering, of trials, of temptations, of testing, difficult times, hardships in life, is this process process that ultimately should end up with you having more wisdom. Because life is hard. Life is challenging. 
things don't go as we want. They don't play out as we as we envision them happening. We have hopes. They don't come to realization. Uh, and, and life has bumps along the way. And he says that process, though, should ultimately test our faith, right? Purify our faith. What we trust in, what we look to, uh, lesser things will, will go away because they don't deliver. You know, and in that process, we'll, we'll, we'll learn, man, i got to persevere. I can't quit. I can't give up. You know, but, but along the way, whenever anyone ever goes through hard times, we always ask the why question. Why does it happen? Well, we ask what questions. What is God trying to teach me? And the answer to those questions is often wisdom. And if we go through life, and if we go through trials, and we go through suffering, uh, we will uh, gain more wisdom. You know, and then fourth and lastly, how do we get more of it? Well, we, we know that the world does not have it. That the wisdom of the world that, 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 that ends up producing tribalism and rivalry between people and groups of people and a self-centered, me-only focus of life, that is demonic wisdom. And this idea of pursuing wisdom is not a new, new idea. Right? Even as Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how the Greeks love wisdom and they pursued wisdom and they, they, they were chasing after wisdom. But the problem is where they were looking was wrong. And the wisdom they were going to end up with and the wisdom they were going to cling on, cling to, is, if it's not from God, it is not going to last. And it's not true. And so much of Proverbs, guys. But if you, if you, if you think about today and you think about last Sunday and you think, gosh, I need to get a lot more wisdom. My heart's not full of God's wisdom. My relationships are not where my relationships need to be. I, I gotta figure this out. I gotta figure out what the deeper spring within my heart is. Man, read Proverbs. Chapter after chapter in Proverbs is, you know, it says wisdom's call goes out. Screams out. It's in the streets. It's on the corner. It, it's God is God's wisdom in it's it's there. But the question of Proverbs is who's listening? Who's listening? Who's seeking it? Right? And, and it's costly. Proverbs says that, chapter 4, it's costly. Though it costs all you have, gain it. Though it's incredibly expensive, it's going to require great sacrifice, pursue it. Be this more valuable than anything else. The other hint, I think, of, of where we can really grasp wisdom, wisdom is found here in our text in James. You know, he says, you know, that of the, the earthly wisdom, he says that quote-unquote wisdom doesn't come down from heaven. That's kind of a funny way to phrase it. That doesn't come down from heaven. All right? You know the wisdom that does come down from heaven. The positive wisdom. Right? He's, he's speaking of wisdom, uh, you know, descending. Knowledge descending. He's personifying it into a person. That person's Jesus. John chapter 1. He is the Logos. The wisdom of God, the knowledge of God has become flesh and dwells among us. That the full wisdom and knowledge of God through which God created everything that's seen. That very logos, that very wisdom, that knowledge is, is Jesus. And then when we seek Him and when we study Him and we make ourselves a disciple of Him, a student, a follower of Him, man, that, that means our entire life is in pursuit of wisdom. Because we see Him in every situation that life comes its way, and He shows us a better path. And He shows us a way to love others that shatters 
all of our world's norms. That destroys all of our instinctual reactions. He shows us a different path. He shows us a way to love that is not the way of this world. And when you think about a peacemaker who extends peace loving, that's Jesus. I mean, we take the bread and the wine, and we're going to do that in a second. I mean, that we have peace through his body. And ultimately, our, our, our fundamental problem is that of we're separated from God because of a life of sin and rebellion. And that whether or not we believe it or not, we are enemies of God, hostile to God because of the way of life we've chosen. But Jesus comes down and deals with that fundamental problem of sin. And in doing that, he enables us to have reconciliation between us and God. To actually have relationship, to have harmony again, to, to again be part of God's family, not an outsider. Right? He is the ultimate peacemaker. Taking away that, that, that wall of hostility that separates us from God. You know, and as we take the bread and the wine today, I encourage you to, to, to be in awe of God. In His infinite wisdom. His wisdom that took the chaos that was and made the ordered world in which we live. The, 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 the creator that made us and can take your chaotic, disorderly life and make it beautiful. To take people that, that are from different backgrounds and, and, and honestly, if they were grouped together without God, would bite and devour and tear one another apart. But he brings us together in a way where we can actually have tremendous love for one another. You know, but we got to look to him and to him alone ultimately to find that wisdom. Amen? Let's pray now for the uh, the bread. And the-